So intermissions, you know that moment when you're at a play and act one is done and then the lights come on and it's not over, it's just an intermission. Act two will begin momentarily. And I never actually personally appreciate intermissions because it always introduces awkward conversations that you don't want to have with people you happen to know at the same place. You're like, oh, hi, I guess we got to talk. There's nothing else to do right now. Or there's a smell of cookies moving through the lobby, and you're like, I don't want one of those, but it smells really good. Uh, intermissions are interesting. Some people like stretch. They like to go to the restroom. But I would prefer to get the show on and going, right? Um, I'm sure the actors and actresses love intermissions. They can refresh in uh, whatever they need to do, the costumes, makeup, rehearse lines, be grilled by the director about how they missed this part, or they need to get their game together, or good job, guys, good game. Um, whatever goes on, intermissions are just, it's just kind of a strange pause. It's a strange pause in the midst of an ongoing drama. That's what we find in this text is an intermission in the drama of Ezekiel's prophecies. We saw in the first chapters, 1 through 24, how the glory of Yahweh has to leave Jerusalem because they're driving him out through their idolatry. So the glory of Yahweh departs. We now hit this intermission. We need a space to pause, to be lifted off of the face of tragedy, realizing that the glory of Yahweh has left and he's going to give us this time to say, well, Israel's not the only one who's doing bad things in the world. <laughs> You're not the only person doing bad things in your life. We're not the only ones getting it wrong. There's a world that's getting it wrong. So Ezekiel's going to give us a tour among the nations who are getting it wrong. And they too are going to have some things come down. But then at the end of this intermission, starting next week in chapter 33, we're going to see the next act of Ezekiel. So if the glory of Yahweh departs in the first act, it's going to return in the second act. And this is, these are the chapters that are the most exhilarating, most studied, most heard, most loved in Ezekiel. The best is yet to come in Act 2. So right now we're in an intermission. But we're also in an intermission, not just in Ezekiel, but right now in our seats as we sit here. We are what theologians call, we're living in the time between times. It's the best they could come up with. Because we have this interesting paradox of Jesus claiming when he comes that the kingdom of God is here. I have brought it. You are part of the kingdom of God. Yet at the same time, the New Testament saying we're waiting for the coming of the kingdom. And this clearly what we're living with next to obnoxious neighbors or working for difficult bosses or seeing what we see on the news. is clearly nothing close to the kingdom of God. So we're confronted with this weird paradox of we the kingdom has come. Or at least it's begun. A kingdom has begun, but it has not fully come. So we're in an intermission of sorts. It's, it started. Jesus has come, and he's, he's shown us the path, and he's accomplished our salvation, yet he's not present on earth, at least physically. He is through his church, and that's how he's present, but he's sitting at the right hand of God. We're in an intermission, waiting for him to return. And then, what he begun as Jesus of Nazareth, he will bring in its fullest form as the Lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered the beast. 
And so we look at Ezekiel as something, you know, sort of like, oh, yeah, this is in the past. The, the coming of Jesus was in the past. But then we look at Revelation and there's other prophecies yet to come. That's Act 2. And yet we're somewhere in the middle. And the, the awkward thing of this intermission is what do we do? What, what do we do? Do we talk about the play? Isn't God great? Isn't he a good director? Um, are we the audience kind of waiting for the show to get on? Are we using the restroom, trying to find comfort food in between? I ran out of Twizzlers. I need some more. Like, what are we doing in the intermission? And, and I, I was struck with the thought of that's one way to think about it, but it's the wrong way to think about it because we are not the audience in this drama. We're actually part of the drama itself. We are the characters and the actors and the actresses whom God, our director, our dramatist, has given us roles to play. And he's given us a script, which we have made into a bigger word, script sure. Scripture is what is happening in this play, and we have a part to play. And so we're in the intermission, but we're not wondering when the show's going to get on. We're backstage. We're rehearsing lines. We're, we're fixing up what wasn't good enough. We're making sure that the, the, the costume that ripped on the stud of the floorboard when the person exited, you know, that that thing gets hammered down, the dress gets hemmed, and um, that the director is cueing us in, like, good, good, everyone is good, but your, your, tempo's, your tempo's a little fast. Let's, let's reel it in a little bit. For us, the intermission is about fine-tuning. We know what has been with Christ's coming, and we've seen the examples he's lived, and the words he's taught us to live by, and the Sermon on the Mount, and all of his other teachings, and we hear what Paul has told us to do. But, but we're also waiting for Act 2, when we see the final triumph come. So who are we in between? What are we doing in the intermission? Are we just going to sit around, Oh my goodness, my part's up, I wasn't ready. Or are we in the script? Are we with the director? Are we with the other actors and actresses so that there's harmony when showtime resumes? Just some thoughts I had. So, but, but that's, that's where we are in Ezekiel as well, is that there's an intermission, right? The glory is departed. The glory will return. But Ezekiel has some words to prepare us for this returning glory. And it's, it's this, it's that while we cannot see physically God, while there seems to be an absence of his work in the world, he's going to show us that behind the headlines of the news, behind the scenes of everything going on from pole to pole, from east to west, it, it's all, it's all God's glory working behind the scenes. So we're going to, we're going to see what Ezekiel has to say about the nations. So. Buckle your seatbelts, because it's a lot of judgment. Okay, so chapter 24 ended. We didn't get to cover it in any length last Sunday, but I did on the podcast. Um, in chapter 24, Ezekiel's wife dies. It's really tragic. She dies because God wants Ezekiel to know how it feels to see his city, Jerusalem, get destroyed. Like You couldn't explain it to me, God. You had to do it this way. I had to do it this way so you'd know what it feels like. So Ezekiel loses his wife. This was when the city of Jerusalem was under siege from the Babylonians. They're camped around the city, and they're going to starve the people out and finally go in and get them. It takes two years, this siege. The day that they set camp around Jerusalem, Ezekiel's wife dies. The day that they finally take the city and annihilate it, 
Ezekiel's tongue is loose and he's able to speak the prophecies of the return of the glory of God. That will be in chapter 33. So he's got to sit with his grief for a long time. And in 33 verse 21, you're going to see this. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day, thirty-three twenty-one, of the month, a, vu- a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. So again, at the end of 24, Ezekiel's told, the city is under siege, your wife is dead. Then finally in thirty-three twenty-one, a messenger comes two years later and says, it's done, the city is dead. And then the great promises of the returning glory are going to pour out of Ezekiel's mouth. So until then, we turn our focus on what God's doing around the world. So chapter 25. We're going to see seven nations prophesied against. Seven. Very common number in the Bible. God created the world in seven days. And he's going to now <laughs> decreate, <laughs> in a sense, the world by prophesying against seven nations. So you're going to see seven nations. It's going to be Ammon, beginning chapter 25. We're going to see four. The four neighbors, Ammon, Moab, Edom, and the Philistines are going to get it right away. Then God's going to save a lot of venom in chapter 26 for the city of Tyre. Tyre is going to get a whopping um, three chapters devoted to him. And then in chapter, at the end of chapter 28, Sidon gets a little mention. So that's nation number five. Uh, I'm sorry, number six. Tyre's five. Sidon's six. And then in chapter 29, Egypt gets a whopping four chapters because Egypt is the seventh and final grand finale of the seven judgments. Seven judgments. That's what Revelation has, right? Revelation is a series of seven judgments. Here Ezekiel pours out seven prophecies of judgment. And more than that, in chapter 29, when we hit the prophecies against Egypt, that seventh judgment will be told in seven miniature judgments. So Egypt, the seventh, is going to have seven judgments against them themselves. So we have seven with a set of seven. It's very much, you, you almost get the sense that John, the prophet who wrote Revelation, knew how prophecy worked and spoke in the same language that Ezekiel spoke. All right, so chapter 25, the first judgment against Ammon. Verse 1, The word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, Hear the word of the Lord Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Because you said, Aha! Over my sanctuary when it was profaned, and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate, and over the house of Judah when they went into exile, Basically, because you made fun of my people. Therefore, behold, I am handing you over to the people of the east for a possession. Then look at verse 5. I will make Rabbah a pasture for camels and Ammon a fold for flocks. Basically, it's going to be animal fields. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. I'm going to do all this to you because you laughed at my people when they were destroyed. And then you will know that I, I am Yahweh. And Yahweh is not just a local Israelite deity. Every nation had their God. I'm not just Israel's God. I am the world's God. Then you will know when you see my power over your nation. 
That phrase, you will know that I am Yahweh, is going to occur 14 more times through our chapters. It's going to be a dominant theme. It repeats again at the end of Ammon's prophecy in verse 7, then you will know that I am Yahweh. Now verse 8, thus says the Lord Yahweh, because Moab and Seir said, behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. Therefore, I will lay open the flank of Moab from the cities, from its cities on its frontier, the glory and the country, those cities, and I will give it along with the Ammonites, the people of the east as a possession. Then, in, the, in verse 11, then they will know that I am Yahweh. So right off the bat, we have the Ammonites and the Moabites prophesied against. These are not just locally close to Israel. They are also family close to Israel. It's been a long time, but do you remember where Ammon and Moab come from? Yeah, it's one of the the finer stories in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 19, God judges Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot and his daughters just escape in time. And you remember how Lot's wife looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. And then they flee to the mountains. And they're hiding out in the mountains thinking, they're thinking the apocalypse has happened, right? They think they're living in the, in the days of revelation. They're hiding out in the caves, hiding from the wrath of God. And there, Lot's daughters are getting a little bored. And they're also thinking, the whole world is destroyed. Who can father sons for us? And then one of the other daughters says, uh, our dad. And so they get him drunk, and they each night they sleep with him, and they have children. Um, one daughter births a son and names him Ammon. The other daughter births a son and names him Moab. And from these sons, these incestuous sons, come these nations, Ammon and Moab. Now, not only is their origin a little sketchy, but... They didn't treat Israel very well when they left Egypt. And Ammon and Moab tag-teamed to hire the prophet Balaam to curse the Israelites before they come to the land of Moab. And so God has a bone to pick with Ammon and Moab. So not only were they never nice to Israel, but then when Israel falls and the city of Jerusalem collapses, they are the first to make fun of them. Aha, serves you right. And God's like, well, actually, the Babylonians are going to get you guys next. So then you'll know I am Yahweh. And then in verse 12, Edom, another family member. Do you know who the Edomites are? Esau. Jacob and Esau were twins who, well, they fought like siblings. <laughs> they were twins. They fought in the womb. They came out fighting. Jacob was grabbing Esau's heel as he comes out. There was, it was just destined to be rivalry between these two. Jacob grows up, steals Esau's birthright. He then steals the blessing from Esau, and Esau vows to kill Jacob. Eventually, they make up. But then Jacob deceives him one more time by saying, sure, I'll follow you to your mountain home. And then he goes, makes a detour while he's in the back of the whole caravan and never sees Esau again. And Esau becomes the Edomites in the hills, and Jacob becomes, he wrestles with God, 
and is renamed Israel. And he has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And these two nations never really got along. When Israel left Egypt and they're in the wilderness, it was the Edomites whom they came to and said, look, we're brothers. We don't want to fight you. Let us pass through your land. We won't take anything. We just want to pass through. And Edom basically says, nope, you're going around our territory. And so even two generations later, they were still at each other. And even in the New Testament, they're at each other. Jesus, the son of Jacob, right? He's part of Jacob's lineage. He's a Jew. Jesus comes to earth and he is brought before his death. He's brought before a king known as Herod. And King Herod is not really a Jew. He's just partially a Jew who married a Jew. He was mostly Edomite. And so there you have King Herod with this authority over Jesus, and you have Esau and Jacob wrestling yet again, and he's able to uh, be part of getting Jesus to the cross. So Edom, Edom has a shot at judgment. (laughs) Thus says Yahweh God, or the Lord Yahweh, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them, therefore you will be judged. But the one nation that God does not say, you will know that I am Yahweh to. He does not say, and then you will know I am Yahweh. Instead, he says in verse 14, it's down toward the bottom of it. And they shall know my vengeance. Yeah, there you have it. Edom, by the way, has been known, was known for plundering when Jerusalem fell they didn't just say, ha, 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 serves them right. They actually went in with the Babylonians and took plunder. So Edom was rejoicing over their dead brother. Verse 15, the Philistines. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, because the Philistines acted revengefully and took vengeance. You remember the Philistines. They were the thorn in Israel's side for a long time. And that warrior captain, Goliath, came from the Philistines to fight Israel. The Philistines were right next to Israel between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. And because of their proximity and their rivalry, they were always fighting with each other. And, well, Philistines finally going to get squashed. And then once again in verse 17, Then they will know that I am Yahweh when I lay my vengeance upon them. So, four nations down, three to go. The prophecy against Tyre, chapter 26. Now, Tyre. (coughs) Tyre was a magnificent harbor city up north from Jerusalem on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They were considered the gateway into the ocean, into the sea. And And they were the ones to receive most of the trade from across the Mediterranean. And some, some historians have said that they made contact as far as Spain and Britain. So I'm not sure about the timetable there, if that's the same like time as this tire. But they were spread about, and they received so many goods. They were an incredibly wealthy city. And they were known as a city in the sea because um, off the coast, about half a mile from the coast, there was a rock island in which they built their city. And so it was not only well fortified because it was on a rock and it had its walls, but because it had the entire ocean around it as part of its protection. And so Tyre was considered impregnable. Nobody could take Tyre down. 
So it grew in wealth. It amassed wealth from trading, and people saw Tyre as the envy of the Mediterranean Sea. But Tyre, your day is going to come. Now, here's what's interesting. The Babylonians attack Jerusalem first. Then they go up to Tyre. Why this is interesting is because you may remember in Jeremiah chapter, I want to say 27. In Jeremiah 27, yes it is, you may remember that Jeremiah was told, it's Jeremiah 27.1, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, remember Zedekiah is the last king of Judah before they get squashed. In the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Thus Yahweh said to me, Make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Send word to the king of Eden, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon. We just saw those three fall, right? The king of Tyre and the king of Sidon by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. So what's God telling Jeremiah to do? He says, take a yoke, a big wooden yoke used for plowing fields with oxen. Take that on your neck and walk into this uh, summit of leaders, of world leaders. They're all meeting with Zedekiah about the Babylonian problem. Moab, Ammon, Eden, Sidon, and Tyre. These kings are there with Zedekiah. What do we do? Let's form an alliance. They probably formed some sort of alliance where they would say, okay, if Babylon attacks you first, we will all come to your aid. If they attack us first, you all come to our aid. So that there was this, right? There's this alliance. Like, look, this is the end of the world. We need to team together to survive. And of course, Jeremiah clumsily walks in with this huge thing on his neck. It says, uh, actually, all of you should surrender to Babylon because you're all going to die anyways. And then he walks out with the yoke, right? And they're like, who was that guy? And that guy's like, he's that nut job I've been trying to get rid of for a long time. Don't worry about him. Well, they should be worrying now because what happens, Tyre is in this meeting, the king of Tyre. When we come to chapter 26 and see this prophecy against Tyre, Jerusalem's already destroyed. What does that mean? It means Tyre bailed on their treaty with Israel. When everyone said, okay, we will defend each other when Babylon comes, they all stood around waiting and saw Babylon chose Jerusalem first. And then they all said, oh, sorry for you. We're going to stay in our impregnable fortress. So yeah, God doesn't like Tyre right now. They renegade on his people. Now, why would Tyre do that? Well, because Tyre, first of all, believed, hey, we don't need Jerusalem anyways. They can't get us in our city. And being the, the whole seaport of the Mediterranean, getting all of the trade from the rest of the world, they saw Israel as a land that they wanted. Oh yeah, Babylonians, conquer them. We will then have access through the city to Egypt and we can have even more trade and wealth. They're opportunists, little creeps. Well, God has a, Ezekiel has a lot to tell them. So 26, verse 1. In the 11th year, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, aha, the gate of the peoples is broken. It is swung open to me. See, they thought it was their opportunity. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre. Oh, you thought that Jerusalem's fall was to your benefit? Now you've got another enemy to deal with, Yahweh, king of the earth. They shall destroy. He's going to bring, it says in verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre, break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets. What, what, what good is a rock in the middle of the sea if a city isn't on it anymore? Ah, we'll hang our fishing nets here now. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord Yahweh. And she shall become plunder for the nations. And her daughters and the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Ooh. Yeah, so here's a problem, Tyre. Jerusalem's fall might have been good news for you, but did you think that Babylon might come for you next? Like, was that even a consideration? Yeah, probably not. So now they have it in for them. Verse 7, For thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots and with horsemen and a host of many soldiers. He will kill with the sword your daughters on the mainland. He will set up a siege wall against you and throw up a mound against you and raise a roof of shields against you. He will direct the shock of his battering rams against your walls and with his axes he will break down your towers. The language of war is very graphic here, probably because uh, Tyre hadn't seen war in a long time. You need to know what this is like so that you would get a little bit afraid. His horses will be so many, verse 10, that their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen and the wagons and the chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city that has been breached. With the hoofs of the horses, he will trample all your streets. He will kill your people with the sword and your mighty pillars will fall to the ground. They will plunder your riches and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. Your stones and timber and soil will... They will cast into the waters, the midst of the waters, and I will stop the music of your songs, and the sound of your lyres shall be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock, and you shall be a place for the spreading of nets. You shall never be rebuilt, for I am Yahweh. I have spoken, declares the Lord Yahweh. Wow, pretty terrible. Now, here's actually what happened in history. Um, Babylon didn't conquer Tyre. And Tyre might have actually thought that they had an upper hand against God and therefore become very proud, even more proud than they were. Ha! Babylon didn't actually destroy us after all. So what happened was Nebuchadnezzar came to Tyre and because it was so impregnable, I mean, you've got half a mile of ocean. They, they took out the mainland parts of Tyre. That was easy. But the main city on the island out in the ocean How do you get to something half a mile away? How do you have a navy when you've come from Babylon over miles of desert to get to Tyre? What do you do? Well, they tried and tried for 13 years. They besieged the city of Tyre. And finally, both sides tired out and Tyre just surrendered. They said, you know what, truce, what do you want? We'll give you our wealth. There you go, get away. And then Babylon very disappointed from 13 years of not getting the golden jewel they wanted, needed a victim. Soldiers were mostly paid by looting. 
So you got 13 years of wages unpaid. What do you do? You send them down to Egypt, as we're going to see later in the prophecies. And Egypt is going to be the victim of Nebuchadnezzar's wrath. But so, so what happens to Tyre? Did the prophecy fail? Well, Nebuchadnezzar did come and did fight, but it's going to have to wait. Tyre was allowed to be proud for a few more years. By a few, I mean like a couple hundred. Alexander the Great, however, was, well, greater than Nebuchadnezzar. And in 332, he found a way to defeat Tyre. So you may have heard the story. It's been well documented and told over and over, especially in Bible teachings, that Alexander the Great figured out how to conquer the half mile of sea between him and his army and uh, the people of Tyre. Uh, he basically had his soldiers take one rock at a time and throw it in the ocean until they were able to build a land bridge and they marched to the city and were able to take it. And they scraped it down to a rock. And I hear, I, this is totally just book knowledge, I don't know, I haven't been there, but I hear that um, there's actually a causeway now. Like the island is not an island anymore, it's part of the mainland because that causeway through silt build up has actually become part of the land now. And so you see evidence of Alexander the Great and fulfilling um, God's word. So Tyre couldn't be proud forever. They tired, I guess. Get it? Tired, tired. Yeah. So in 27, so we had a prophecy against the city. Now there's a lament against the city. Um, I think it's, it's worth reading some of these verses because you should hear echoes of Revelation. So remember when Babylon falls in Revelation chapter 18, and all the merchants and the kings wail and lament for the great city because now all of our wealth is gone and they're ripping out their hair and pulling their clothes because it's fire forever. We're, we actually get a lot of this language here for the city of Tyre. So in 27, verse 1, The word of Yahweh came to me. Now you, son of man, raise a lamentation over Tyre and say to Tyre, who dwells at the entrances of the sea, Merchant of the peoples to many coastlands, thus says the Lord Yahweh, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the heart of the seas. Your builders made perfect your beauty. Basically, they had this attitude of we own the ocean. We own the ocean. Yeah, you're built in the ocean. You have all the trade routes mastered. All of the wealth from other nations come to you, not to the other ports. A lot to be proud of. You're beautiful. Verse 5, they made all your planks of fir trees from Sinar. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. A lot of language to describe their beauty and their power. Then in verse 12, Tarshish did business with you. Because of your great wealth of every kind. Now, when Babylon falls in Revelation, there's a list of all of the wealth that was in that city. Very similar to the list you're about to read here. Tarshish did business with you because of your great wealth of every kind. Silver, iron, tin, and lead they exchanged for your wares. Javan, Tubal, and Meshech traded with you. They exchanged human beings and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. So, even back in Bible times, we have human trafficking. And this was happening at the city of Tyre. Now, in Revelation, when it talks about Babylon, that part, the human beings being exchanged, was listed last in the list of wealth in Babylon. Uh, because in Revelation, the emphasis of the sins seems to fall upon the fact that they used human lives like merchandise. 
And so part of the system of the beast is going to be to use human beings like merchandise. I'd say we're pretty well ready for that. Verse 14, from Beth to Gomorrah, they exchanged horses, war horses, and mules. 15, you see ivory, tusks, and ebony. 16, you have emeralds, purple, embroidered work, fine linen, coral, ruby. It goes on and on and on about all the wealth that was there. Then, in verse 32, no, actually, uh, let's go to verse 28. Verse 28, at the sound of the cry of your pilots, the countryside shakes, and down from their ships come all who handle the oar. The mariners and all the pilots of the sea stand on the land and shout aloud over you and cry out bitterly. They cast dust on their heads and wallow in ashes. They make themselves bald for you and put sackcloth on their waist, and they weep over you in bitterness of soul with bitter mourning. In their wailing, they raise a lamentation for you and lament over you who is like Tyre like one destroyed in the midst of the sea when your wares come from the seas you satisfied many peoples with your abundant wealth and merchandise you enriched the kings of the earth now you are wrecked by the seas in the depths of the waters and your merchandise and all your crew has sunk with you well everyone is sad because Tyre was the big thing it's kind of like you can imagine that's the wailing that will happen if, when, when, if America falls, a lot of nations will realize, oh, a big staple in the world just let the seams rip apart, right? You can imagine some of the same wailing, which then asks the question, how much more innocent are we than cities like Tyre and Babylon? Um, fortunately, we've had a pretty moral sense as a nation because of our Christian roots, but um, I mean, I don't think it's a secret that we're pretty far off from those lately. And I don't know, it just makes you wonder, doesn't it? It makes you wonder. Chapter 28. Don't wonder too long. 28. The word, <clears throat> now we're against, there's a prophecy against the prince of Tyre, the king himself. If you care, his name is Ethbaal II. Ethbaal II. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord Yahweh, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas. Yet you are but a man and no God. Thus, or though you make your heart like the heart of a God. I mean, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself, and you have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and your trade, you have increased your wealth. Yeah, all that. And your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, because you make your heart like the heart of a god, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you and the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. So you get the point, right? Tyre is proud, and they're using their beauty to lure the nations. Does that sound like Israel last week? Using their beauty to lure the nations. Um, we're going to finish chapter 28. We're going to come back to that. It's so good. We're going to finish there with our application. In uh, 28 verse 20, we have a little section on Sidon. And so you see that Sidon's going to get judged at the end of verse 23. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. 
So, so far, everybody's going to know that God is Yahweh except for Edom. And then in verse 24, you have this really refreshing, finally, (laughs) this really good breath of fresh air. So we finished six judgments. The seventh is on hold because there's going to be seven judgments on that seventh. And now there's this little like intermission within our intermission. You following that? (laughs) Um, So he's going to give us a breather. So 28, 24. And for the house of Israel, there shall be no more a briar to pit to prick or a thorn to hurt them among all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord Yahweh. How will Israel know? Well, they've already been defeated, but they're going to really know when God gives them rest and no more will nations be the thorn in their flesh. He's going to remove that from them. It goes on in verse 25. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered, right? When your city gets felled, refugees fly everywhere. We know that very much in this day and age. We see refugees in the news everywhere. People scatter around the world looking for home. But God's going to take those scattered Jews and bring them back. Um, Whom he scattered and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations. Then they shall dwell in their own land that I gave to my servant Jacob. And they shall dwell securely in it. And they shall build houses and plant vineyards. They shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am Yahweh their God. So twice it says that to Israel. So Israel is going to be in good shape one day. Cool fact, and I counted this to make sure. Before verse 24, we have covered 97 verses. 97 verses up to chapter 24. So starting in 25.1 to 28.24, you have 97 verses. At the end of this word of hope to Israel, starting in chapter 29, verse 1, to the end of Egypt's prophecies is 97 verses. So like literally in the very smack dab center of this ugly judgment around the world thing, in the very center, 97 verses later, Promise Israel the 97 more verses against their biggest enemy, Egypt. And it's going to be very much revelation-like because seven, the seventh judgment times seven, and here we go. So chapter 29, in the 10th year, in the 10th month, on the 12th day of the month, the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, set your face against the against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him, against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord Yahweh. Guess what? You're probably used to this by now. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. So, the Nile is considered life, the lifeblood of Egypt, because it overflowed its banks. And that's how that desert area got watered, and they were wealthy with crops. Egypt was always full of crops, and the entire world relied on Egypt for grain. So much so that the only reason Rome, in the New Testament, the only reason that Rome cared about Jerusalem and cared about controlling the peace enough to crucify anybody who created a disturbance, the only reason Rome cared about that little podunk town in the backwaters of their empire was because they were the land bridge of getting Egyptian grain to an overpopulated city of Rome that was always short of grain. It's the only reason they're there. 
That's how important Egypt is to the world. And Egypt is very boastful. Now Pharaoh's like, the Nile, by the way, that's mine. I put it there. Ooh, okay. So in verse 6, surprise. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am Yahweh. Verse, uh, verse 9. And the land of Egypt shall be a desolation and a waste. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Because you said, the Nile is mine and I made it. Therefore, behold, I'm against you and against your streams. And I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation. Verse 15. Skip down to 15. It shall be, Egypt, shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms and never again exalt itself above the nations. Is that a fact? Yeah. Egypt is a far cry from what it was in ancient times today. They used to always be one of the top kingdoms of the world because of their grain. Today, they're a third world country. And I will make them so small that they will never again rule over the nations. And it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel. Then they will know that I am the Lord Yahweh. That's the first set of prophecies. It continues. Um, well, there's a lot. Uh, let's go down to chapter 32. Chapter 32, verse 1. In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you are like a dragon in the seas. Now, dragons sound fierce, but the thing that we don't see here, and honestly, I don't want us to be here too long tonight, but um, the dragon is... A term for it's also called Rahab in Psalms and Job, and it's an allusion to uh, a mythical monster that the Jews created to refer to what the world was like before God created the heavens and the earth. Right? Remember, there was darkness over the surface of the deep, and so they later created this thought that there was this mythical sea monster, the dragon, and that God conquers it at creation. And so they're alluding to that and saying that, look. You're not the lion among the nations. You're the chaos monster, and God squashes you. That's, that's the point. They're trying to show Yahweh's sovereignty over Egypt. And now in verse 3, Thus says the Lord Yahweh. I, will, I, just, I just thought this was really a good picture of, kind of summarizes their judgment. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, I will throw my net over you with a host of many peoples, and they will haul you up in my dragnet. So imagine, right? You got the Nile River and there's fish in it and you're throwing in the net and you're gathering a bunch of fish and you're hauling it out. Except it's not fish, it's people, right? It's the people of Egypt. And I will cast you on the ground. So you get the haul of fish and you throw them on the ground. On the open field, I will fling you and will cause all the birds of the heavens to settle on you. And I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. So yeah, it's not like something you want to go to sleep with, but... It definitely shows you like Egypt is nothing but a flopping fish out of the river at the mercy of buzzards and beasts. Skip down to verse 12. <clears throat> I will cause your multitude, verse 12, I will cause your multitude to fall by the swords of mighty ones. 
all of them most ruthless of nations. They shall bring to ruin the pride of Egypt. So there you have it. Tyre was accused of pride. Egypt is accused of pride. As as you already saw, alluded to, I made the Nile. It comes from me. I'm the life source of everything, Pharaoh thinks. Um, But now in verse 17, you come to the seventh and final of the judgments against Egypt. So 32 verse 17, and I think this one is just good. This is just a good, like Ezekiel had the flair for the dramatic. He finishes this off with a hoot and a holler. 32.17, in the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, wail over the multitude of Egypt and send them down, her and her daughters of majestic nations, to the world below. Ooh, the underworld. Send them there to those who have gone down to the pit. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and be laid to rest with the uncircumcised. So what's happening here is that Ezekiel is presiding over the funeral of Egypt. In writing, in prophecy, he's letting Egypt, he's basically letting them hear his eulogy to them at their own funeral. So, yeah, you're going to go down to the pit, the bad place, not, yeah, there. You're going to go down and you're going to have some company. Now, you know, people joke, oh, I don't mind going to hell, party with my friends. Um, I don't know if this is just tongue and... But by the way, do not take this prophecy as theology for hell. It's not its intent. It's simply to say Egypt is done, okay? That's the point. But I I can kind of see Ezekiel making fun of Egypt, thinking, oh, just party with my friends. Are you going to party with your friends? Well, speaking of your friends, you want to know who's there waiting for you? Verse 22. Assyria is there. And all her company, its graves all around it, and all of them slain, fallen by the sword, whose graves are set in the uttermost parts of the pit. And her company is all around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who spread terror in the land of the living. You hear how many references to death there are there? Yeah, Assyria is there. You remember Assyria, Egypt? You remember how we were all afraid of Assyria? How they were going to conquer the whole world? They took out the northern kingdom of Israel, right? Remember King Ahab and like all that wicked lot? Took them out. Samaria is gone. Like We all feared Assyria, but look at them now. They're waiting for you. They've made your bed a little special room for you in the underworld. You're going to be just like them. 24, Elam is there. Now, that's a nation east of Babylon, so... Look, your neighbor waiting for you. Verse 26, uh, Meshech and Tubal are there. They were um, part of the border of Assyria, so they're neighbors. Verse 29, <laughs> oh, he didn't like Edom, did he? Edom is there, her kings and all her princes, who for all their might are laid with those who are killed by the sword. They lie with the uncircumcised, with those who go down to the pit. Verse 30, the princes of the north are there which are probably just little small city-states north of Israel. So they're there. So, verse 31, When Pharaoh sees them, he will be comforted for all his multitude. Pharaoh and all his army, slain by the sword, declares the Lord Yahweh, for I will I spread terror in the land of the living, and he shall be laid to rest among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. Pharaoh and all his multitude declares the Lord Yahweh. Okay. That ends our prophecies. Um, 
man, Egypt, though, what a finish. This is why it's a finish. Now, I'm, I'm spoiling part of the climax of Ezekiel for you. So if you don't like spoilers, plug your ears. But um, here Egypt goes down to the grave, and it ends there. They're buried, done, signed, sealed, delivered. Right? Get in the bed you made. Let yourself rot. Israel, too, has died, right? Jerusalem's destroyed in Ezekiel's time. They are, as a nation, they're dead. They, too, should be in the underworld with Egypt, right? Just like all the other nations you've fallen to. But in chapter 37, this is why it's a great finish to Egypt, because it's an intentional contrast to what happens to Israel in chapter 37. Rather than going to the underworld like Egypt, in 37... Ezekiel sees the most amazing sight. 37 verse 1. The hand of Yahweh was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of Yahweh and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Have you ever seen the Lion King and the Elephant Graveyard? That's the image I get. It's just a valley filled with mounds of bones. What are these bones? It's Israel. It's the nation of Israel slaughtered and dead. And he's asked, verse 3, son of man, can these bones live? And he dodges the question and says, well, uh, you know. (laughs) And then he's told to prophesy over them. And it says that I will cause breath to enter you, verse 4, breath to enter you and you shall live. And so Ezekiel is going to prophesy and breath. The word breath in Hebrew is ruach, which is the same exact word. It says, um, Now the earth was without form, and it was void, and darkness hovered over the surface of the deep, and the ruach of God hovered over the waters. And God said, let there be light. Right? So in the beginning of Genesis, you have this like kind of deathly scene, like nothing's really made, but then things are made. God begins to speak, because first, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters, or the ruach of God hovers over the waters. Here, Ezekiel's going to prophesy over these bones, the ruach, the Spirit, or the breath of God. And they're going to, you'll, you'll get to cover it in the near future, but the bones are going to start to come together. The knee bones connected to the something bone and the something, you know, right? I want to say jaw bone, but that's quite a jump. Um, it's going to come together because the spirit is going to bring life to them. So Egypt goes to the grave, but Israel is going to come out of the grave. That's part of the glory of God returning. By the way, another spoiler is that when you get to Acts chapter 2, you see the Spirit of God bringing life to people, and they're coming together. And Acts chapter 2 goes out of the way to say how many different places around the world the Jews there who hear them um, filled with the Spirit of God, how many places of the world they come from. And when you look on a map, the places all circle, a perfect circle around Jerusalem. Literally people from every corner of the world are in Jerusalem when the Spirit comes and is bringing life to these dead people. So it's pretty exciting, um, God's hope. But um, that's why I think it's such a great finish to Egypt. They are down and they're done. Okay, I want us to finish uh, talking about the weight of pride. I think that's one of the things we see through here is like either people are gloating over Israel's fall or they themselves are proud about who they are and like, oh, we'll never become, we'll never be taken down. Then they're taken down and God's like, now you know I'm Yahweh. I think the most fitting thing for us to walk away with tonight is to simply take that phrase repeated over and over, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. Take that and be that. Do that. Know Yahweh. Why do you want to wait until the 
the house comes down to know that he's Yahweh. Why not know him beforehand? And that would have been what saved Israel, but they didn't know Yahweh. That's what would have saved Egypt and Edom and Moab and Ammon and Tyre, all of them, if they had known Yahweh. But they didn't know Yahweh. They knew something else instead. They chose a different sort of knowledge. The knowledge of good and evil. And let me connect that for you. Go back to chapter 28. <clears throat> it, this, this section in 28 is buried in so much judgment that sometimes it gets overlooked. You may not have even known this was in the Bible, but it's phenomenal. 28. Verse 12. Son of man, raise a lamentation of the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord Yahweh, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Wait, what? Did you read that right? Yeah, you did. Not the king of Tyre, literally. He wasn't literally in the garden of Eden. But what Ezekiel is doing is he's comparing the king of Tyre in his splendor and in his position of rulership in his corner of the world. He's comparing that to Adam who was given rulership over creation and the splendor of being built in the glory and image of God. Adam was a magnificent creature prior to the fall, and now he looks like us. You're a shadow of your future self, by the way. Just That's nice to know when you look in the mirror, right? So he's, he's likening the king of Tyre to Adam in the garden. So you are in Eden, the garden of God, Every precious stone was your covering. Now, every single stone you're about to read is on the high priest's breastplate. The sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. So the beings in Egypt had the precious gems the high priest wore on his breastplate. They were like made of these gems. There was that kind of glory. I don't know if that literally means we walked around with like rock hard muscles. That might be cool. But um, it may be simply describing the fact that they were the embodiment of the presence of God on earth. They were the priests of the earth. We didn't need religion and priests because we were one with God on the earth. Just like the high priest. Uh, So the king of Tyre, like, look, dude, you once had it all. God was with you. He appointed you to your position and you were beautiful. And then um, verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub and I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked Ooh, the stones of fire. It's so cool. I don't know what that is, but I can imagine like pavement stones, you know, that you walk on like in a garden. And when you touch them, there's like inside, they just come alive with fire of different colors. And you're like just something beautiful, something God would make. Right. And then walking in the midst of that. Um, And it mentions the mountain. Um, Genesis doesn't mention a mountain, but it's very much implied when it says four rivers come out of Eden and water the earth. Well, naturally, if Eden is up on a mountain, as God would have been like he was in Jerusalem on a mountain in his temple, uh, the rivers would have come out of there and gone down the four sides of the mountain to water the whole earth. And so putting it together, we get this picture of um, Eden being a mountain. At the top is God and his tree of life. Now, in verse 15, though, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. 
And in the abundance of your trade, now we're getting much more to like literal tire, right? In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. Just, you know, the way you flick an ant off your bed sheet. (laughs) Off the mountain of God. My favorite visual. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart, verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. So Tyre's being kicked out of Eden. Um, that's when they lose their city and their beauty. Like God gave them wealth because he wanted them to be a garden of Eden on the earth. He wanted the king to use his authority to bring people to the one who made Tyre wealthy, to God. But Tyre did not know Yahweh. They became proud. Tyre, remember, said, I'm the city in the sea. And it said somewhere, I don't remember now, so many verses ago, but he said he was proud. He did not know Yahweh. Now, Adam, right, was given this grand place to rule creation in the Garden of Eden. He was given every resource at his fingertips. And what does Adam do? Adam becomes proud. Now, we don't imagine Adam strutting around thinking, I'm God, I'm God. But what happens is when the serpent comes to Adam, the serpent says, um, did God really say you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And Adam's like, yeah, that's true. Uh, And then the serpent says, don't you think God's hiding? I'm paraphrasing a bit here. Don't you think God's hiding something from you? I'm like, I didn't think of that. It's like, because God knows. Now, this is what it really says in Genesis 3, verse 5. God knows that in the day you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day you eat of it, you will be like God. That's what Tyre wanted. That's what Egypt wanted. You will be like God. What does it mean to be like God? Because you and I want to be like God, too, but we mean something very different. I want to be loving and patient like God. I want to be compassionate like God and merciful and forgiving This isn't what it means to be like God here. You will be like God knowing good and evil. Which, if you are God knowing good and evil, it means that you're the judge. You're the the dictator. You're the lawmaker of what is good and what is evil. That's the sin. The knowledge, the power to be able to call what you want good and what you want evil. That's pride. That's pride. I don't want any other God above me. I want to be the one that makes those decisions. That's why we're called to know Yahweh rather than to know good and evil. Because to know Yahweh is to subject ourselves to his rulership, to depend upon him, to say, I need you to be king and I will do what you want me to do in this world. Tyre and Egypt were given Edens of wealth and abundance, but neither of them chose to eat from the tree of life and say, we want to do this your way. We want this to be little kingdoms of God on earth. Instead, they said, no, we'll do this our way. We'll eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they became proud and they were flung from their kingdoms. That's the idea. And here's the weight of pride in our lives. The weight of pride is so seductive because we may not think we walk around, oh yeah, everybody loves me, or I'm so good at this, and oh, I don't need God, and blah, blah. Like we may not have that sort of sense of like manacle authority in life, but, but we do in other ways kind of bend the rules for ourselves. Think that we're the exceptions. Oh, no, 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 that, that applies to everybody else, but me, I, I know, I'm stronger than that. 
Because 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 says, Take heed if you stand, because you will fall. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Actual wording there. Be careful. Take heed. And I think all seven of these nations were for us, this screaming warning, Take heed lest you fall. No, Yahweh. No, Yahweh. Don't know your ambitions. Don't know your desires, your lusts. Don't know what you want to be right, what you want to be wrong. Don't know any of that stuff. No, Yahweh. And know your dependence upon him. Know his word. Know what he wants from you in life so that you will remain in the garden he's growing from the inside out. And that's what Paul says to us is those who follow Christ are new creations the old is past, and behold, all is becoming new. And then in Galatians chapter 5, he says that those who are filled with the Spirit are bearing the fruits of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of goodness, of gentleness, of faithfulness, of self-control. You're bearing, but what do you call it? You're bearing not morals, not virtues, although they are those things. He called them fruits of the Spirit because when we live like that, we are richer than Tyre and all its glory. We are more powerful than Egypt and all of its wealth. To know Yahweh is the true path. I hate to sound like some success speaker now, but it is the path, and the Proverbs unashamedly say, it's the path of wisdom and the path of success. To know Yahweh. It's a very different kind of success. That's what we want to do. So, um, Adam knew Yahweh, but, you know, then he knew something else right he knew what he wanted to be right and wrong and ate from the tree but what's ironic is that adam is actually short the name adam in hebrew adam is short for the word earth the word earth is adama at an ah so if you take the ah off of adama you have adam and he's named such because adam came out of the earth right for you are dust and to dust you shall return remember that that's what it means to know yahweh it's what it means to be humble. It's to remember that we're from the earth. We were made, not makers. And we have a phrase called humility, humbleness. Well, you know that our, our word comes from Latin, and the Latin is hummus. Not the bean dip, but... <laughs> but it means, in Latin, it means earth. So to be humble is to be one who's close to the earth. In other words, it's to remember that we are Adam come out of the Adamah. But Tyre, set up to be the new Adam and the new Eden, forgot or never knew. Egypt never knew. Israel never knew. You and I, though, we're warned over and over tonight. Know that God is Yahweh. So to know is to be humble. It's to know our roots. He made us. He is the shepherd and we're his sheep. We're not looking for autonomy to do things my way. So in our intermission, as we wait for the future coming of Christ, what do we do? I hope you get by now, you're not to do things your way. We're to live and walk in humbleness with our God, to know him. And finally, finally, and I do mean finally, um, we're to know that he is Yahweh. And if you remember the name Yahweh, it comes from the burning bush, the first time that he tells us what his name Yahweh means. And he said, Moses, I am Yahweh. 
Moses said, who am I to say he sent me? He said, tell him Yahweh sent you. I am who I am. Which isn't much of a definition. I am what? (laughs) You will be who? That's the point. Humility can be defined with filling in the blank of Yahweh's name. I am peace. So if you're an angry person, peace is not going to be found from your inner willpower. Peace is going to be found by trusting in Yahweh to be the I am your peace. I am love. I am patience. I am goodness. I am generosity. Whatever we need will not be found within ourselves, will not be found in the kingdoms of this world. It will be found in knowing that God is the I am. And I am what you are not. That is true humility. And that's how we will be able to walk in the garden of the Lord without being flung like a little ant. Not, and not, without falling in the way of Tyre and Egypt. God wants resurrection life for us. The bones coming together, not the grave of Egypt.